Maybe finding your calling, discovering your purpose, isn't about getting everything that you thought you wanted in life. Maybe it's really about being open to uh, the shifts and turns and unexpected twists in the plot of our life story that happened along the way and responding to it in, in the right way. So how do you know that you're doing the work that you're, quote, meant to do? Is there even something that you're meant to do? We get so freaked out by the thought of us toiling away and spending our entire lives doing something, spending the vast majority of our waking hours doing something that's the wrong thing. Is that a legit question? Is there a right thing and a wrong thing? Is there work that we're meant to do? Is there a calling or a vocation or a single thing that, you know, we should be searching for? Well, that's one of the things that we explore in today's conversation with uh, entrepreneur and author Jeff Goins. And um, he's gone pretty deep into this question in a provocative new book called The Art of Work. And we're going to go into it as well. I'm Jonathan Fields. This is Good Life Project. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice. It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Um, we've known each other for a couple of years now, and what's kind of interesting, and I want to actually pick up a little bit with your personal story and with with kind of an interesting shift that you've been going through, because I, I think it'd be, it, it would be interesting for our 
community of listeners to sort of talk to you mid-shift. And we'll dive into some of the stuff that you talk about in the book because it's actually really relevant to, to I think, your personal shift. And that is that um, you became known to me I don't know, a couple of years back as uh, the writer guy, you know, a guy kind of burst onto the scene, started building a, um, a, a huge readership um, in the online world and created books and then started uh, teaching with and working with writers and showing them how to actually, you know, like call themselves writers and and become authors and stuff like that. And, um, and you're in the midst of this really, I think what, in my mind at least, is a kind of a fascinating evolution. And, um, and part of that, you know, I think is often comes with a sense of struggle, you know, um, building something really powerful around a particular um, type of notoriety and then kind of hitting a point where you feel like, huh, I'm, I'm bigger than that or I'm, I'm, I'm interested in more than that. So t- take me a little bit deeper into sort of um, what's happening with you right now. Well, you know, in some ways, um, I feel like I'm just kind of bringing to the surface who I've always been, you know, and and I think you see this sometimes. You see this with uh, celebrities uh, who kind of make this big shift going from, you know, being known as doing one thing to, you know, doing what they really wanted to do. I just I just was watching Birdman. I don't know if you saw that movie, mm-hmm. but, you know, here's this guy who basically walked away from uh, this billion dollar superhero movie industry to do this you know, kind of, uh, um, you know, upscale Broadway play. And, and, and there's this struggle because really what it comes down to is, um, he just wants to feel significant and, you know, wants to feel like an artist, but there's this tension between, do I do what people want or do I do what kind of resonates in my soul as the thing that's true? Um, and, uh, not that I'm, uh, you know, a superhero necessarily, uh, but, um, you know, I, I I really related to that. I related to that temptation, and you and I have talked about this before. To do you just give people what they want, um, and and some of that's just really smart marketing. You know, looking at at opportunities and um, serving people, and some of it's you know just being being nice. Like I'm not going to do just my thing. Expect people to pay atten- attention. I'm going to really care about how I can help and serve uh, other people. But the challenge is when you sort of get stuck in in that place where you just do this one thing when the reality is there's there's something resonating, you know, deeper with you. So, you know, this new book, The Art of Work, is something that I feel like I've really been living for the past 10 years, trying to understand what am I meant to do? How has my life actually been preparing me for this work that I'm doing? And how can this book, I mean, it's sort of interesting that the book is is a story, my story and lots of other people's stories of how they transitioned from uh, one kind of uh, work, you know, whether it's uh, it wasn't always just a day job to them going and working for themselves, although there's stories of that. But going from doing one thing, looking at the, the, their vocations as really a means of making a living to um, doing something that uh, really creates this meaningful life, which, you know, I, I love I mean, you talk a lot about that, Jonathan. I love that. You know, don't just make a living, uh, make a life. And the uh, I guess it's irony of that is the the book is also meant to um, not just uh, share that that process that I I've gone through, but also kind of hopefully move my career in in a different direction and help me um, you know reach out to new people and engage um, my audience in different ways. Yeah, so it's really interesting because in a way you're you're sort of saying okay, you, you kind of burst onto the scene as the writer guy and. But fundamentally, like what you're really interested in and what you have been interested in and, and deeply exploring for the better part of a decade is 
how do we take that thing that lights us up and um, and build our livelihood and our life around it? I mean, really similar to what I you know, spend a lot of time exploring. Um, but it, it is really interesting because I think so many people who especially listen um, to, to us, we, we tend to have a little bit more of a grown-up audience, very often a little bit further into life, yeah. often with a partner or with kids or substantial responsibilities. And, and you know, it's a different conversation when you hit that point in your life um, and you've built something that where you're comfortable, you know, you're probably, maybe you're earning okay and you've got a certain amount of structure and lifestyle built around it. You know, it's sort of the classic golden handcuffs. And um, you don't want to complain to anybody else because you're actually doing okay, you know, from the outside looking in, but there's something inside of you saying that that it's not quite right, but it's it's a much more nuanced and very often more complex and longer term conversation, I think, to start to explore moving from that place into, um, you know, more of a, I, I guess what you would call a vocation. And I want to dive into how you, how you define that more. And, um, then it would be when you're younger in life. And I think that's, um, that's one of the, and, and, you know, it, it's interesting because you're also, you're married, you're a dad, you know? Um, so you are that guy, you know, and, and it's, it's sort of like you're, you're writing the book about doing it while you're in the process of doing it. And the book itself is a major mechanism in your ability to actually make this move from being defined as one thing to being defined as n- not something which is new to you, but something with you know that, like you said, you've always defined yourself as, or you've always known was a, a, was was a part of you. But it's sort of like you're you're stepping into the bigger hole and going public with it. Yeah, it's a very meta thing, right? It, this, it is. This, it's, this it's like... about this shift that you know that is is sort of uh, in in you know many ways initiating another shift in my life. Not unlike the movie Birdman, by the way. Mm. Which maybe we can get them to sponsor this show. <laughs> it's like brought to you by. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, it is really interesting. Um, let, let's let's dive into it a little bit because you threw out this word vocation also, and and I want to kind of deconstruct that because I I I use that word a bit. I've heard um, people like Parker Palmer use it, and I know when he uses it, you know, at least from the reading that I've done of his work, which um, and I'm a huge fan of his work, and I think you are also from what yeah, I remember. I love, I love you know, that. it's. He's not often he he doesn't define vocation in the context of this is how you earn your living. There's something else going on here. So I'm curious how do how do you define that word and how is it different or the same from something like calling? So you know to answer that question, I kind of have to tell the story about how I wrote the book and I'll briefly summarize it. But basically, I wrote a guru book. Um, you know, and I wrote this book where I said, hey, like here are these seven things that I did and you can do them too and it'll be great. Uh, and I, I felt okay about that. Like I felt like that was it was honest. You know, I have friends who write those kinds of books. I don't, um, I don't, you know, deplore that style of writing. Although when I finished it and I read it, there was something that just there was like a check in my spirit, and I just thought this isn't right. Like this isn't completely true. And so, uh, the, like most things I do, uh, you know, I, it wasn't completely well thought or planned. And I was like, ah, like I think I need some more. Uh, testimonials or something, you know, I need some more, um, illustrations in my book. I'm going to go, I'm going to go find some people, have cool stories and just kind of stick them into the book. And that journey forced me to rewrite the book. 
Um, you know, if you read the book, there's very little of me. And I mean, every once in a while, you'll get pieces of my story. And, and that was intentional because I, because as I started interviewing people, um, I, I, I think you've probably seen this in your work, Jonathan, just with this show. When you start listening to people's stories again and again, and you're really just trying to hear their story, trying to seek out truth, you don't ha- necessarily have an agenda. Maybe you have some ideas of, of, you know, like themes that you think might emerge. Uh, and I certainly did, but a lot of those were proved wrong. And so as I began to rewrite this book, it became this much more nuanced uh, story of how people really found meaningful lives, but really in the context of the work that they did. And for some people, that meant a career. It meant uh, you know, going from being a banker to becoming a park ranger. Uh, for other people, it meant um, uh, understanding that all of these different jobs that they had uh, were preparing them for you know something that they would do in, in the later years of of their life, and and for some people it just meant a change in perspective about the work that they were um, already doing. So you know to go back to that that how, you know how to answer that question of what a vocation is, I think quite simply uh, it's the reason that you were born. I mean it's the reason that you exist, and uh, in in order for you to you know entertain that possibility, I think you have to believe that that there is a reason that 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 you know it's not just you know chaotic uh you know uh, uh you know masses you know molecules slamming into each other that there's there's something there's a purpose um you know there's some deeper story that's going on that we get to engage in and all i really wanted to do with the book in terms of talking about vocation or calling or even purpose i mean i kind of use those words interchangeably uh, although i like the idea of a calling because it's um you know whether you think of that having a spiritual connotation or not i hear lots of people describing the work that they do in terms that are other that are sort of um beyond you and uh one of my favorite quotes that's uh that's from parker palmer uh, that i use in the book is before I can tell my life what I want to do with it, which is sort of like the like typical Western approach to success, like I'm going to succeed at this. Uh, he says, before I can do that, I have to listen to my life telling me who I am. And I think Parker Palmer would say vocation is really about discovering your true identity. And uh, I would absolutely agree with that. And I would build on that to say that your activity needs to flow from your identity. And when you reverse those, when you put the activity first, as a lot of people do, as I have often done, go do, 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 um, you, you can lose yourself, your true self, uh, in that process. And so uh, vocation to me, the, what I describe as a path, not a plan, is really the process of rediscovering who you truly are and then figuring out what that means about what you're supposed to do with your life. Yeah. So we're on the same page about one thing, but but potentially not about another thing. Um, I I completely agree that one of the biggest limiting factors that we really don't think about is not the fact that we don't know what to do, but that we have no clue who we are, Mm. you know, that we're so disconnected from a a deeper sense of identity, you know, who we are, what matters to us, how we want to be in the world, what fills us up, that... You know, we can't make decisions. We don't. We, we don't know what's calling us because we literally just don't. We haven't spent any time really diving into the essence of our being. Um, so, um, and, and how can you build actions 
around that essence in a way which is in some way fulfilling if you have no idea what it is um let's talk about this idea though of you were born with a purpose um because i i struggle with that um and and it may just be in the languaging it may be in how we speak about it differently but um the idea that every person and and, and i know this is a big contentious thing and i tend to be very contrarian um with this concept but the idea that every person is kind of put on a planet with a single purpose and whether it's defined by us, whether it's defined by genetics, whether it's, uh, whether it's, whether, you know, we were brought here and some greater being preordained it and our job is to figure it out through some, some process of devotion and exploration. Um, I struggle with the notion that each of us has a solitary purpose, um, rather than the idea that, um, each of us had has a a, a set of a, a set of qualities, a set of um, you know we have sort of an individual blueprint on multiple levels, um, and and part of our job is to go and find or create work in the world that, in some way, you know the the negative of the puzzle piece of that work fits with the positive of the essence of our being, but but that also there could be a hundred different puzzle pieces that fit and that, you know, so, so I guess my question is, you know, um, to me, once you go deeper into really defining and understanding that, then, you know, the, your identity, um, there, when I do that and, and when I've worked with people and we've done that, and then they kind of turn their eyes back out into the world, they start to see a myriad of possible ways that they can invest their energies in a way that would fill them up, that would feel deeply aligned with who they are. And um, I struggle with the idea that um, there is one, there's a single form of expression that's the right one. So talk to me about this. Yeah, well, I struggle with that too. And and I don't think there is one. I don't think there's one absolute um, you know, thing that you have to do that you're preordained to do. And if you miss it, um, you, you know, you miss the boat. And, uh, I, I kind of, in the book, I talk about two different paths. There is sort of the self-determined path, the, you know, what I mentioned before, sort of the typical American or Western, um, you know, I, I mentioned the Michael J. Fox movie, Secret of My Success, where you like, you go and you just do it, right? Like you just put your nose to the grindstone and you can achieve anything. I mean, this is sort of the promise that we give people. Uh, it's it's the lie that a lot of parents tell their kids, you can do anything that you want to do. Um, and I, I think it's a nice idea, uh, except that it becomes really crippling and it can pull us away from this uh, process of listening to our lives and trying to make sense of our experiences and our gifts and abilities and skills and whether you think those are innate or learned. I happen to think most of them are, you know, learned through environment and, and practice, although there's lots of, you know, really interesting science that's come out over the past couple of years about how, you know, genetics does, you know, play a role in that. Um, so, you know, that's sort of the, the determined path. And if you've ever watched that movie, The Secret of My Success, you find mm -hmm. that it doesn't work out too well for Michael, that he, he tries to do it and he starts working in a mailroom. And basically ha he has to create a false self. He has to lie and pretend that he's somebody that he's not and kind of fake his way into success. 
And at the end of the movie, you know, he kind of meets somewhere in the middle. He's not this loser who's in, you know, loser farm boy who's in the mail room and can't, you know, get a break. And he's also not this super slick executive that everybody thinks is, you know, some uh, amazing, uh, you know, prodigy. And he kind of comes to the middle of his true self. Like, I, I do have aspirations. I do have ambitions. Um, but you know, the place where I came from is, is a good place. I don't burn the bridges behind me. All of the past is prologue and it, it doesn't dictate my future, but I do think it informs it. So, you know, the, the, the determined path is you can do anything. I, I think we can just look around our world, look at ourselves and, and embrace the fact that that's not always true, uh, at least in, in a, you know, completely literal way. Um, there are limitations and I'll, I'll come back to that in a second because I think the limitations can be really good or good can come out of them. The other, uh, extreme is what you're talking about here. This, um, uh, you know, the, if, if one is a path of determination, the other is just kind of, uh, you know, whatever may be, may be, you know, you can just, um, uh, you know, what, whatever happens in life, it was meant to be. And uh, in one sense that, that sounds really beautiful. Uh, but when you look at all of the evil and pain and suffering in the world, uh, when you look at the times in your life, when you're honest, uh, about your circumstance, there are those moments where you do get to kind of, you know, create a, a piece of your destiny, where you do get to make the path and forge ahead. And if you just have this sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, lackadaisical approach to uh, life, I think you miss out on on those challenges when you have to press in and use some of that am ambition and and go for it. And so I talk about the path of vocation as a middle way in between those two extremes. And what I argue in the book, and this was this was kind of an interesting epiphany. I did think, Jonathan, at the beginning of the book, that everybody has one thing to do, and you just got to go find it. Like I wrote that book, and then when I started telling people stories, I realized. Um, that I had been sanitizing my own story. I'd been lying. I'd been mm. saying, yeah, I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I didn't. Yeah. I had always been writing. And, and you know some of this story. At you know, 27 years old, I, I looked back at my life. I listened to my life, as you know, Parker Palmer tells you. And I was like, oh, like I had no idea what I was supposed to be doing. I was working at a nonprofit. I felt this itch that there ought to be more. I didn't know what it was. And I looked back doing that sort of introspection that you walk people through and realized I'm supposed to be writing. I've actually been doing this my whole life. Now it's time to be um, intentional about it. And so when I started you know, hearing other people's stories, that resonated with me. And what I now understand vocation as is not this one thing that you're meant to do uh, with your life, not this this grand purpose that you, you know, this plan that you have where you just go after and overcome every obstacle to get to. But something in between there, and, and one of the lessons I learned uh, in, in writing the book from all of these stories that I encountered is maybe a calling is more about taking what happens to you, some of the things that you can't control in life, and turning those into uh, purpose, turning those into intentional action. In other words, there are times when life throws things at you. You know, your a relative gets cancer, something goes wrong, uh, you lose your job, something happens that wasn't a part of the plan. And maybe calling isn't you forging this path or just letting stuff happen to you in some sort of pre-destined, uh, you know, uh, way that that you don't have any control over. Maybe it's taking the things that life throws at us and turning it into something extraordinary in, in its own way. And, and in the book, there's lots of stories of people just kind of 
doing their thing in, in a very ordinary context, uh, but but there's there's some sort of extraordinary outcome. And I, I think really uh, that now, uh, after having gone through this process, better understanding my own process, what it really takes to find your calling, which is really about living an extraordinary life, uh, it's not so much the chances that you get, uh, whatever those may be, but rather what you do with them. Hmm. So... Yeah, I think described that way, we're probably on the same page. I mean, <laughs> yeah, but it's always, it's it's interesting to me, right? Because there are these examples of people where they're like, well, yeah, I mean, you threw one out. Like somebody in the family gets cancer, there's some tragic incident. And then, you know, like the survivor becomes, you know, they find their calling as a fundraiser or an advocate right, for a particular right. cause. And then, you know, like the thing that runs through my mind is, so you're telling that person, that um, somebody had to die or somebody or they had to go through some horrendous thing or some horrible thing in the world, you know, some that if the, you know, earthquake didn't happen or whatever it was, but for the fact that there was some some horrible tragedy um, that came into their lives in some way, they they would have never found their purpose and and that that purpose could not be found until that thing happened. So if it didn't happen until you're, you know, 63 years old, then the first 62 years of your life, you're just kind of hose and, you know, poking around without, without the ability to, to be in that glorious place, you know, where you exist with this strong sense of, um, deliberate purpose. And, um, so I, it, it's always just sat really, really badly with me. Um, yeah, me when too. people say that there's, you know, every person has one pr- sort of predefined sense of purpose and your job is to figure it out or to wait for that, you know, external thing to happen that unlocks it in you. Um, cause that, that does happen for some people, but it also implies a certain amount of complete, um, you know, extreme pain that you have to go through to get it and, and complete lack of control over the means of discovering where I've just seen so many people like you were saying where um there's a there's a sort of a, a very deliberate process of self-inquiry and exploration that can open up any number of ways to invest your energies in the world that make you feel like you're filled with purpose rather than you've discovered that single thing that gives you purpose which for some people I, I think may exist but for the vast majority of people I think you can live a fantastic life and feel like you've got a you know, you're contributing to the world in a profound and meaningful way. Um, and there may be a thousand different ways for any one person to do that. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I agree. Um, uh, in the art of work, I, uh, I referenced the book, uh, because it really catalogs all these lessons that I learned. And I, I know that you get that, you know, just encountering people's stories, uh, I'm just like, wow, like th- this was interesting. I really, I learned through this, um, process. Uh, but one of the stories that I encountered, uh, that I talk about at the beginning of the book is a story of a kid named Garrett Rush Miller, who basically gets a brain tumor at five years old. And his parents say he will, he won't have, he'll have five years left to live. And, you know, so his parents are, they're going through all the treatments, trying to extend his life, do whatever they can to, you know, fight the cancer. Um, they remove, the brain tumor and the kid is left mute, blind, and paralyzed. I mean, things just keep getting worse and worse. And uh, long story short, what ends up happening is he doesn't die within five years. And at the end of, of a year of treatment, he and his dad finished a triathlon, which for them is sort of a way of, um, you know, saying that the cancer hasn't beaten them. 
that they can't control everything that happens in their life, but they can control what they do today. And and uh, his dad, Eric, told me this. He said he, he was sitting in the hospital one day and just kind of had this epiphany where he he felt like he was he was counting down the days left in his son's life. And it was just depressing and, um, you know, grieving and, you know, uh, just feeling this sense of despair that was threatening to just destroy their family. And um, he realized just, just, it just kind of came to him and he realized, wait a second, who's to say that, that, you know, our, that I or my wife or anybody in our family is going to outlive Garrett. Uh, We don't know what's going to happen to us tomorrow. We're not promised tomorrow. Um, you know, we all as a family need to be living, uh, every day, you know, as, as if it counts, which is cliche, but, but, but true. And so when I talked to them about this, Garrett was 18 years old. He and his dad had completed over a dozen triathlons. Uh, Garrett climbed Machu Picchu, became an Eagle Scout, did all of these things that came out of the restraints from, you know, getting cancer. And, and his dad told me, he goes, there's no guarantee that, you know, Garrett's going to live another day. I mean, the cancer could come back at any time. They did some uh, clinical treatments um, and he ended up regaining some of his sight. He ended up being able to walk eventually and talk, of course, because we chatted. But I asked them, I said, do you ever think about what life would be like if this didn't happen? And uh, Garrett said, no, I've never thought about that. And, and Eric said, no, no, I haven't thought about it either. And I was kind of surprised by that. I was like, you've never thought about what life would be like if this tragic, terrible thing that doesn't happen to most five-year-old boys uh, didn't happen to you. And Eric said, no, because it doesn't matter because these are the ha- this is, these are the cards that we've been dealt and we just have to uh, play them the best that we can. And so then I asked them the opposite question. I said, do you ever think what wouldn't have happened if all this stuff didn't happen, if you didn't get cancer. And um, Eric said, oh, we think about that every day. None of this would have happened. They started a foundation. All this good came out of this bad. Uh, But, you know, that's not to say the cancer was good. I mean, it caused their family lots and lots of pain. Uh, Eric and his wife ended up, you know, divorcing because of of the strain and stress of of all of that. And uh, and he was very, you know – uh, open with that, uh, with me about that, you know, t- sharing regrets and, and all of that. I don't think they would ever say this was good. This, this thing that happened to Garrett was good. But I think because of that mindset shift that first happened in Eric, and then he started to share that with his family and his son, you know, took that on too. Um, good came of it. And and that sounds like a, a much, much more passive uh, you know, way of putting it than it really was. They made good come from it. They, they squeezed good out of, out of the bad. And I think vocation isn't like sitting in a monastery waiting for, you know, um, a ray of light to hit you in the head, uh, because most of our lives don't look that way. Vocation is this active process of looking at whatever cards life has dealt you, which I think most of the time, if we're honest, we feel like in some respects, uh, we've missed out. We've missed an opportunity or been given the, the short shrift in something and all we have is this to deal with. And yet I think a calling is really taking whatever the this is and and making something remarkable with it, whatever that looks like for you. Yeah, no, nah, I totally agree with that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. If that sounds familiar, you should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. You brought something interesting up also, which is, well, you brought a couple things up about your process with the book, which is, um, you know, the the book, and it's funny because I look at, um, there's a book that I read, um, I interviewed the authors last year um, called Go Wild. And at the end of it, and sort of like the the notes at the end of the book, um, one, of the, one of the co-authors said that he never, he never, because a book takes so much energy, and we both know that, you know, we both yeah. write books, that um, he never takes on a book without believing that there will be some kind of profound process of personal transformation through the process of writing the book. So he's not just writing it for himself. Yeah, or, or for other, you know, because he, he has a platform and he can write a book or for other people. But, you know, he looks at the book as this vehicle of personal, extreme personal growth. Um, and, and you kind of shared that that happened with yeah. this while you're writing this book. Um, 
How hard was it? I'm curious. And again, I'm sort of like wearing my author hat here also because I've I've been through this. How hard is it um, for you to let go of the idea that that you came into it, especially because you basically wrote the book, right? And then you're like, this isn't the book that needs to be written. You know, but you but you've kind of got something that you yeah you could bring to market. You know, it'd probably do right. okay. You know, oh, it's yeah. it's solid, mm-hmm. and then you you start to you know bring it out into the world. But something in in you, something deeper, something intuitive said something's just not quite right. Um, and I think a lot of us have that voice, but we tune it out. You know, because a either a you know we. we We've invested so much time, money, and energy into getting where we are um, that we we kind of don't want to listen to it because it means that you know we're going to go back into the abyss and have to do it all over again. Yeah. Um, but I think there's this really interesting reframe that you brought up, which is okay. But if I look at this as a process of personal learning, um, you know, like this is an opportunity for me not just to build my career or create something, but how how cool is it that um, I'm actually, I have an opportunity to grow and transform it myself through this process and to be honest and to be real and to be vulnerable. And if I'm not going there, I'm, I'm not only potentially shortchanging those who I'm writing this for, but I'm shortchanging myself along the way. Mm-hmm. I um, I was reading a book uh, kind of during the research phase. I mean, I don't even really think of it as research, but as I'm getting ready to write a book, I just read a ton of books because uh, I love reading and I try to read in a certain, um, you know, topic or genre, but I also let those books take me other places, you know? So I read, um, I read Let Your Life Speak by Parker Palmer and in that he taught, he, he, quotes uh, Frederick Buechner talking about listen to your life. And so I went back and read this memoir by Frederick Buechner, this um, novelist turned minister turned school teacher turned novelist again. And he had – and he in, in like 120 pages shared his experience of finding his vocation. He talks about the importance of listening to your life and he says something in, in that book that uh, all moments are key moments. And uh, I was reading another book called What Should I Do With My Life by Poe Bronson. Yeah, sure. And I, I love that book because it's just a bunch of stories of people that you know basically did one thing and right. ended up doing and, something And there was else. essentially no advice in that book. No, uh-uh. <laughs> None. Uh-uh. It was just stories. Yeah, and, and it's I, like it, – yeah. And, yeah. and it was a huge book too, which was so oh, yeah. fascinating, right? You've got this book <laughs> where you've got all these stories of people of, and, and there's no advice else. It's just stories. And yeah. It commercial. It was a massive commercial success. You're like, yep. what's behind that, right? So what I love about that book is at the very end, you know, Poe kind of per- pulls what a great name, Poe. Uh, you know, great for pandas, great for authors. <laughs> he that only parents will get that joke. Uh, he pulls back the curtain and finally kind of tells us his story nah. in the sense that um, he says, you know, as a journalist, my job is to remain detached from the stories. And yet I couldn't do that with this book. And he talks about in introducing this businessman to this other person and helping them connect because through, through the process of telling all these people's stories, he gets involved in their lives, which I think is really important. And um, I, that connected with me. And then he talks about at the end when um, he he thought, you know, I always thought that as a writer, I'd be writing novels or something. And now I'm writing these, you know, nonfiction advice books, something that I just didn't really 
want to do because I had, you know, an idea about what that, you know, sort of um, style of writing, uh, you know, it, it seemed cheap and I didn't want to do that. And yet here's like I thought I'd do this and I ended up doing this. And when I read that, I thought uh, – putting all those things together, I thought that was really interesting. All moments are key moments, Frederick Buechner said. And, and Poe Bronson just tells this entire you know, book of stories that people thought they'd do one thing and they ended up doing something else. And here I am trying to write this book and uh, w- wanting it to go one way, not feeling great about it, going and, and encountering people's stories and learning things along the way. All I did was ask people to email me. And a lot of times the person that emailed me would connect me with, you know, somebody that was two or three degrees of separation away. And then I'd find that person and they'd tell me their story and I'd go, okay, that's interesting. First few stories, I was like, okay, whatever. I don't even know what I'm looking for. And then I started hearing the same thing over and over again. One of, one of the themes was that Poe Bronson thing. I thought I was going to do this, but I ended up doing that mm. again and again and again and again. And, uh, all of a sudden I was like, well, maybe Maybe finding your calling, discovering your purpose isn't about getting everything that you thought you wanted in life. Maybe it's really about being open to uh, the shifts and turns and unexpected twists in the plot of our life story that happened along the way and responding to it in, in the right way. And um, when I started to just you know kind of hit the tip of that iceberg in terms of conceptually understanding there's more to this, I looked back at my own story and I go, you know what? This is the thing that I've been feeling unrest about. Like I've been cleaning it up. I've been saying, well, I did this and I did this and I did this. And all those things are true. It's not a lie in the sense that I made stuff up. It's a lie in the sense that I pulled out those key moments, those subtle in-between nuances, like how I didn't know what I was going to do when I started my blog. I didn't know how I was going to make money or that it was going to you know, allow my wife to stay home and raise her son and eventually allow me to do all the stuff that I'm doing. Uh, I, I didn't know, you know, when I was 12 years old and I was writing stories in my three ring spiral notebook about gargoyles that I was going to be a writer someday. But there was something underneath all that, you know, there was this sense, this awareness that grew with time that, you know, as I got more information, I began to understand more about what my life was trying to, uh, to tell me. So to, you know, answer your question, was it hard to let go of that? Not really because I didn't like the book, you know, kind of like Poe Bronson. <laughs> right. I didn't I don't like those books. I mean, they're okay, but I don't I don't believe them. When I read somebody that says these are the seven secrets for success, you know, like I I like acquiring information. I can pull some nuggets out of that. But in terms of sitting down and reading the book, I don't necessarily enjoy that process. And I just have this rule about being an author that no matter what, I can't write a book that I hate, you know, that I wouldn't read. <laughs> it's a pretty good rule as an author. Yeah. I, I don't have like... high standards. <laughs> just like don't write something that you think sucks. It's like I, it's really good, but I would never read this. <laughs> <laughs> People tell me it's good. I've never read it. I just wrote it. Um, yeah. I, so that was the process for me was understanding this is true about myself, having the suspicion that I was missing something. and uh, But I just didn't like it. I wasn't happy with the work that I'd done. I just didn't know what the alternative was. And when I started to engage with, the, with these other stories, um, I started to learn things about myself and about this path that I was trying to describe. And I like the, I like the Poe Bronson approach. I like engaging in the stories. I mean, I'm having a book launch party later this week, and the people that are in the book are are invited to come, and a couple of them are coming because I, you know, spent a year of my life studying these stories, learning them, understanding them, really helping them understand my own story. And now those stories, uh, hopefully, are going to help you know thousands of 
people and it doesn't feel right for you know it to be about me because the whole thing is about this thing that this process that we've all engaged in and so i think we have to celebrate it together yeah no i love that um it's kind of do you know you know aj jacobs the writer yeah yeah uh-huh. you, you know what he's doing um this summer actually in new york yeah. uh the the um like the largest family reunion in I history he's running the world's fairground yeah and he's writing a book about you know like right, how right. we're actually all cousins but yeah. you know he's trying to get ten thousand people to come and basically celebrate <laughs> he's, he's actually got sister sledge lined up to come and, and reunite and sing we are family <laughs> of course you would <laughs> which is gonna be like perfect <laughs> um but yeah, it is it is a really interesting thing, and and um, it's interesting to hear you talk about your process because I work in very much the same way, and I resist the the guru and the, you've got it all figured out thing p- pretty fiercely. But at the same time, um, you know, the world kind of wants to put you there, and we're both traditionally published. Your publisher really wants to put you there because they think it's going to sell books more, and so it's an interesting dance to kind of say, look, you know. Um, I, I'm more of a conduit than, you know, like a master. Um, and, and that's gotta be good enough. You know, I see patterns where people see disparate points of data and, and I'm going to share that and you can do with it what you want. Um, and, you know, especially when those patterns emerge from stories that are so relatable and powerful. Um, you, you bring up a term. Um, and we were just talking about this, uh, you know, just in a personal conversation recently, but you also write about it. And, um, and I think it bears exploring because it, it's, it's, it's growing in, um, leaps and bounds in the way that we're seeing people build their working lives. And it's this term of, um, portfolio life or portfolio career. So yeah. take me into, um, where the, where the idea comes from and, and what you mean by it and how you see it sort of unfolding in people's lives. So have you, Jonathan, ever felt like you do a bunch of different things that don't connect and gone, I don't really know how to describe what I do? Me, no, never. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, me neither. But for all those who do feel that way. Right, for the three uh, other people. This will help you. Um, Now, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine named Keith Jennings, uh, who's this brilliant marketer, poet, and writer. And his day job is basically he helps hospitals with their marketing. And we met online because we were both bloggers and uh, he was writing these essays on creativity and just had this um, – his his name of his blog was Keitharsis, which I thought was awesome. And it was just about the creative cathartic process of you know making things and um, just a really neat guy. And we were talking about, uh, I think it was sort of at the beginning of me quitting my job, starting a blog, starting to teach, you know, online writing classes, but then also, you know, writing these traditionally published books that weren't, you know, about writing, although my blog and platform was really about writing, creativity, you know, here's, here's how I made it as a writer and here's how, you know, you can do it too, kind of that guru thing. And uh, I just felt this dissonance. I was like, I don't know how to describe what I do because on one hand I'm doing I'm doing business and I kind of like it. I I mean I don't I don't despise it. I know it's not for every writer, but I like the entrepreneurial stuff. I like the challenge of making things and scaling them, and you know worrying about how how do I pay for this? So you have to think about revenue and stuff like that. But I also have this weird artistic bent where I just 
I can't explain it, but compulsively, like I just have to make something and I don't care who likes it. And, you know, as you said, there's a dance, right? And, and I, and I dance, it's tension. I don't, I don't necessarily give in a one extreme over the other. And I actually think that's healthy. I think most good art comes out of um, that tension, but I'm talking to Keith about this and I just, I'm confused. I, I think I'm supposed to do one thing, right? And uh, he says, he goes, oh, you're just living a portfolio life. And I never heard that term before. I said, what does that mean? He said, well, you know, instead of having one gig, one thing that you do, one, one master skill up your sleeve, you have a few, you know, and your job is to find interesting ways to connect and combine those. Uh, but your job isn't to master the one skill. It's to master the portfolio. And uh, so we talked about this for years before I could really kind of track down the source of it. So he told me he learned it from another guy. And, and eventually I found this book where, you know, the term I think was coined. Uh, it's a 1989 uh, business philosophy book by a guy named Charles Handy uh, who, yeah, I didn't know his name before, but you know, my more academic friends say that basically if you don't study like organizational behavior and business philosophy, you probably don't know who Charles Handy is, but he's this Irish business philosopher. And in that book, the age of unreason, he predicts, uh, the future of organizations and basically says that we're all going to have freelance careers. We're not going to have one 40 year career. We're going to have a bunch of mini careers and, um, and we're going to have to kind of put those together in a portfolio. Uh, and he describes five different types of work that make up that portfolio. And he argues, and I agree with this, that really this is the way we're wired. We're not, we're not conditioned. We're not, um, we're not meant to do, uh, uh, one solitary task. You know, we're multifaceted creatures with different interests and, um, you know, this, uh, the industrial age sort of, you know, conditioned a lot of us to think you're just supposed to do one thing because that's what makes a factory efficient. Well, now we don't, we, we know we don't live in that era. I mean, factories are dying. Uh, the freelance community is, is growing and more and more of us need to be thinking about organizing our lives, not as like one gig, one career, uh, not one, what do you do, but rather as this portfolio of things that um, actually I, I think are, is much more personally satisfying and fulfilling. Yeah. It's interesting that you said um, in that initial conversation that the task is not to master a single thing, but to master the portfolio. And I, I wonder, is that, um, is that possible? Can you, can you master the portfolio or do you master the process of having multiple interests but never actually being a master of any one yeah yeah well i would i mean i i, I love the, uh, what robert green says about this in his book mastery which yeah. seems apropos uh he says the future belongs to people who can combine uh, diverse skills in interesting ways that's a paraphrase and, and he, in his book, identifies all these masters of their crafts and really talks about, explores how they didn't, they weren't just a master of one, one single skill. Leonardo da Vinci was, uh, you know, was a, uh, was an artist. Uh, he was an inventor, uh, and he was also this like war tactician, you know, and made all these, uh, you know, war devices and torture machines for the King of France. That's a pretty diverse skill set. You know, I wouldn't go to my artist friend and say, make me an Uzi, you know, but that's, that was Leonardo da Vinci's job during the Renaissance. And, and in the Renaissance, we had a, a term, a term for these people is called polymaths, you know, this mm. idea that you did multiple things. And, uh, yeah, I agree. It's not so much about becoming the best at this skill, this skill, and this skill. Rather, it's about looking at 
how can you combine these different things that you do in a way that is unique? You know, and, and if you think about that from a business perspective, uh, you're kind of niching down. I mean, you're you're finding uh, the core audience that wants what you have in the weird, interesting way that you're going to uh, offer it. And I think a lot of us look at, at at the things that we can't do as weaknesses instead of as signs of um, strengths that that we can kind of combine in different different ways. So instead of me going, I may not be the you know as good as as Hemingway as a writer ever uh but maybe I could be a better business person than him and you know my writing and business and marketing sense can combine in some sort of you know interesting portfolio that's unique to me so yeah I like that idea of thinking of a portfolio not as I'm going to be good at this this and this but rather as how do I combine these basically to create my ideal job description and uh, you know, there was this interesting study published in Forbes and several other places uh, recently where they were they were just watching uh, trends in the workplace. And one of the things that they are seeing is that by the year 2020, uh, about half of the American workforce is going to be freelance. And by 2030, it's going to be the majority of people. And so this idea of living a portfolio life, whether we like it or not, whether we think that's for us or not, um, the reality is it's going to be the way we have to approach work and life uh, for for most of it, most of us in our lifetime. And uh, I think it's I think it's a great opportunity for self reinvention and for finding out what what have I been missing out on by getting pigeonholed into you know some sort of job description that's really me just being a cog in a system. And how can all these other side hobbies and interests and passions? How can I start bringing those into my portfolio to create? better work. I think it ultimately that, you know, yields a, a, a better kind of work that you do when you take all those seemingly disparate things and pull them together uh, in an interesting and unique uh, portfolio that is your work. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> the whole concept of the portfolio careers is kind of fascinating to me how it's become more and more accepted. And certainly, um, I would say defines the way that I built my career. Um, the same time you just threw out a term and as you were talking, you know, like something else spun into my head and, and, you know, you just sort of threw out, um, you know, you can explore, um, you know, how, what are you missing out on with other things? Part of the, um, there's a dark side, I think, to the portfolio life, um, or to validating the portfolio life as, you know, like this is legit. This is how I can build my career. And that is that, um, you, how broad do you allow the portfolio to go, you know, yeah. and what's guiding the breadth of the portfolio? Is it, you, I think what I've seen so many times is people say, well, you know, uh, I love to paint and I love to write. And I also, oddly enough, I love spreadsheets, you know, and how can I put those together? But yeah. then you've got, I, I love to paint, I love to write, and I love spreadsheets and I love chocolate and I love driving and I love traveling and I love... And then you've got, I've had conversations with people where, you know, like they're telling me like, I want to figure out how to put these 10 things into a career. And they'll tell me, well, I'm, you know, I, I have to be able to do it because I'm a polymath and that's just the way that I'm wired. And I kind of look at that and I'm like, you're, you're being massively guided by fear of missing out. You know, the classic FOMO is a big term we hear right now, hashtag FOMO. <laughs> and, um, and there, there comes a point where I, I get really concerned that what drives um, a relentless refusal to let go of every conceivable thing that you could do that you're remotely interested in, that 
people throw it in out of fear of, you know, like out of fear of missing out on any one of them. But even more, I think that's actually masking something deeper, which is a fear that, um, a fear of actually testing their metal in any one of those deep interests and realizing that they're not that good. Um, a fear of being vulnerable to the world. Um, you know, going to that place of, I'm going to give some, and this is one of my concerns, I guess, with the broader portfolio life approach in general. Um, I think you don't probably don't see it all that much when somebody is, you know, sort of blending a portfolio of one or two or three things. But I think once you start to go beyond that, there's so you, you've basically baked into the model that you don't have the, the human capital, the resources, you know, the, the cognitive or creative or emotional, psychological, or physical abilities to, to go so deep into any one of them that you become extraordinary at any one. And in a certain way that, that predefines an excuse for you to never, um, to, to always be able to say, well, well, of course I'm not the best in the world at this, or of course I'm not great at this because, you know, I've chosen to the portfolio life and that's not, you know, what it's about for me rather than, you know, sort of owning up to a potential um, fear of what if, you know, I actually really do want to do one thing. You know, there are one or two things I really, if I could just do those one or two things, I would really, really want to do them. But you know what? If, what if I'm not good enough? You know, what if I'm actually not good enough? And it insulates you from putting yourself in that place of ever having to get an answer to that question, ever being exposed to the risk, to the judgment, to the vulnerability. But at the same time, it keeps you from the possibility of you getting what you want. And um, so, you know, I, I am a fan of the portfolio life, but I'm also, I think there's a dark side that I've seen people move into, which is um, a portfolio life defined by so many different pieces of the portfolio that what they're really doing is insulating themselves from the um from the the potential um vulnerability of being deemed not good enough in any one but at the same time they're insulating themselves from the potential gift of of feeling the competence of becoming extraordinary at a smaller number I absolutely agree with that, um, and not just because you're the host of the show. And I don't want to kick off. <laughs> so when I started writing, I made this commitment that I was uh, going to really only do one thing with my free time, other than like you know go for runs and spend time with my family. Uh, I was going to devote all my time to writing for two years before I w- was going to expect any sort of outcome from that. So when I started my blog. I started writing on it every day um, just as a means of practice and, you know, practicing in public, putting my work out there uh, in hopes of maybe somebody discovering it at some point, but really just as a means of accountability initially. And I did not expect, I mean, of course, I like check my stats and stuff, but I didn't really expect it to be where I wanted it to be, which was, I thought, man, if I get 200 email subscribers in two years, uh, and if I don't get that in the next two years, then I'll quit. You know, that was sort of my my runway, my ramp. And uh, as a result, um, my really my my lifelong hobby of playing guitar, and I, I think you know this, I played guitar with a band professionally mm-hmm. for a year. We toured right out of college. 
Um, that was the thing that I thought I was going to do. But the more I did it, the more I practiced it, the better I got at the skill, uh, the less I realized that it was something that I actually wanted to do vocationally. And uh, so I deprioritized that. When I when I discovered, well, really, like music was a, a shadow of of the writing career that I was supposed to have. It was, it was some sort of sense that you like creating, you like making things, you like standing in front of people and delivering messages and connecting people with art. But, um, really it's the act of creating that, that, you know, lights you up and writing is, is something that you've done your whole life and a much better expression of that. And I, I don't know that writing is the end all be all, you know, for, for that expression. Although for right me, for me right now, it's the you know primary outlet, and uh, as a result, I just I don't play guitar as much as I did before, and sometimes I feel guilty about that. Uh, but I've been reading a lot about play, and it's really important that you have things in your life that don't fit into this portfolio. That's um, at least in in the work bucket, the vocation bucket. That's why I sort of take Handy's idea and turn it into what does a portfolio life look like, and what if work is just one of those buckets? But then there's you know the your home life, whether that's personal or family. Uh, there's play, you know, the avocation, hobbies, the things that you do to re-energize, and um, and then kind of this idea of of purpose. That's you know there's there's something about the way in which you live your life that isn't, you know, just about you, but it's a part of, you know, hopefully something bigger than you. And um, if we get all of the hobbies and we sort of muddy the waters in, in the vocation field, like take all, like I like chocolate and I like playing guitar and you put it all into the work bucket, two things happen, right? One is that's really confusing. You know, if you have mm -hmm. a portfolio of a hundred different things, um, that doesn't, that doesn't quite, quite work. I mean, if you think about the analogy a portfolio is a curated uh, resource. It's this, you know, I mean, if you're an architect or an artist, you're carrying around a satchel or a bag, not full of every piece that you've done necessarily, at least if you're prolific, it's not eventually going to have every piece of work that, you know, you've ever done, but hopefully it's going to have the best stuff that you've done and it's going to be kind of a broad range of I could do this or I could do this and you want to give people an impression of here's what I'm capable of, but you're not pulling out of that satchel like cupcakes because you, like, you love cupcakes uh, and, and you're probably not necessarily pulling out a picture of, you know, your niece, even though you probably really love uh, your niece because that's not necessarily, you know, a part of, of the work here. And then the other thing that we do, if we don't really learn to play. Um, psychologically, uh, we just get worn down. We're, we're basically always on and, and our work will actually suffer. I mean, there's tons of interesting research, uh, about this, about how play complements work, but it only does that when it's compartmentalized as a separate activity where, you know, you're turning your, um, your brain off. So I agree. I think ultimately you don't want to be a, a jack of all trades. You want to be a master of some. Mm. Yep. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The 
all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer after for years to come try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee plus get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details when you need mealtime inspiration it's worth shopping kroger where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie and no matter what tasty choice you make you'll enjoy our everyday low prices plus extra ways to save like digital coupons worth over $600 each week you can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points more savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping kroger worth it every time kroger fresh for everyone fuel restrictions apply I want to talk about one other thing before we wrap. We're coming up on an hour here. Um, The idea of legacy. It's something that um, we've talked about just in conversations over the years and you've written about in different ways. And and, um, it's something that you, you know, you write about again. Tell me what your just thoughts are. Because it's an interesting conversation. You're like, you know, should you think about legacy? Does your legacy matter? What does it look like? Um, And maybe it's just because I'm, you know, sort of a a middle-aged dad. And, um, I, so I start to think about this stuff a lot more and I've talked to people in different age ranges and I think there's definitely a, a gradual rise in importance as people move further into life about them thinking about it. You know, what's the footprint I'm leaving? Um, and what I found also is that people measure that in radically different ways and you explore the concept of legacy. So talk me through your exploration a little bit. I think there's two ways to think of legacy. Um, I was just reading a blog post this morning about, um, how this uh, uh, Leo from Buffer um, was talking about this, and it was a really great blog post. And he was kind of talking about him sort of exploring the question, what if nobody remembers me? Like, mm. what, what does that offend in me? And, and why is that so important to me? And honestly, like that matters to me a lot, Jonathan, uh, in ways that are probably not healthy and ambitious. I want to leave my mark, uh, you know, egotistical kind of ways. And I, I, I thought about that and I was like, that's, that's really um, interesting. I think sometimes when we talk about legacy, we're really talking about ego. We're wanting people to remember our names 
uh, for uh, the the sake of our our you know our own um, self importance. We want people to remember us. Um, in in the book, I I know you're. Um, I remember seeing a, a picture of you getting this uh, 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 Time magazine with uh, the Old Man in the Sea. Yeah, with so Hemingway on the cover. I extrapolate that as you know you you like Hemingway or at least yep, you know I um, do <laughs> care for him a little bit. There's this real. I, I t- tell the story in the book that I read um, in his editor's memoir, um, where uh, Hemingway is months before um, he dies. Uh, he has this conversation with his editor where he basically feels like he ha- will never complete his greatest work. That all of all of his all of his good stuff came out when he was young. And he is just despairing. Now, I, I mean, we now know um, that he – I don't know that this has come out conclusively, but I've heard again and again. And there was this history of you know, bipolar in his family. Uh, but he certainly you know, dealt with that uh, on some level in his life. And, and his dad you know, committed suicide. Uh, and, and yet you know, at the end of his life, he just – he's done all this incredible stuff. He won the Nobel Prize for crying out loud. And um, it just doesn't feel like enough. Hmm. And I have, uh, you know, there's there's that quote, right, that says that um, uh, I think it's been attributed to Thoreau, um, you know, that that you don't want to die with the song right, left yeah. in you. I have a friend who says that's absolutely not true. He said we all die unfinished symphonies. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember watching the movie um, Mr. Holland's Opus and. Uh, you know, not a true story in, in the sense that it, you know, is, is nonfiction. Um, but, uh, you know, it's this beautiful story of this frustrated man who's an artist who's trying to make something his whole life, make the symphony, and he never gets to complete it and, and people never get to hear it. And he really spends most of his life as this frustrated high school music teacher, you know, helping these kids Saying who sang off key, not saying quite so off key, or these kids without rhythm have a you know a little bit less you know bad rhythm, and he's this incredibly accomplished musician, and yet you know if if you've seen the movie, you know you know the climactic ending, he's he's leaving the school where he's basically he's not retiring, he's getting kicked out of it in his old age because they're canceling the music program, and he um, makes his way over to the gymnasium where he hears some noise. And he enters this room full of all of his current and former students who are there to say goodbye to him. And they bring him up on stage and they pull back the curtains. And there's this orchestra of uh, students from, you know, the previous, you know, uh, generations that he's taught that um, are ready to play his symphony. And and the um, the MC of the event, one of his students, who's now the governor of the state, says, Mr. Holland, we are your symphony. And, and there's this really, you know, beautiful, uh, you know, moment where he cries. Um, but I watched that movie and I go, man, like how sucky will it be if I go through my whole life, not knowing the magnum opus, you know, the great work, which is really a body of work Mm. that I'm creating until the end. Now, now we all like, we all know that, uh, hindsight is 2020 and the older you get, the more wisdom you acquire. So there's going to be stuff where you go, man, I didn't know I was doing this at this time. And now I look back and I totally get it. But I want to be as engaged in the difference that I'm making in people's lives now. I want to be aware of the symphony that I'm creating. But I also want to acknowledge that, um, you know, if Hemingway, <laughs> who was a genius, I mean, I, I have this, so much respect for the man. I love reading biographies about him. I'm, I'm, I'm obsessed with the story of his life. But if he dies feeling like his best work is still in him, what does that mean? 
Well, I, I think that legacy, I mean, there's two ways to think about it, right? One is the ego. And I think if, if you pursue your work as a means of making a name for yourself, you run the risk of feeling like Hemingway at, at the end of your life, where you just feel like I could always do more. There's more to do and my work is going to die with me. And that is scary. That is depressing. Uh, the other way to think about legacy is it's not about what you do. It's about what you leave behind. And one of the most significant things that I've ever been a part of was um, helping initiate the first honor code at my college. Uh, you know, this this accountability system for students where basically if somebody was caught cheating, instead of them getting kicked out of the school or, you know, failing or whatever, they would go before a board of students and the students would decide, you know, what to do with them. And I spent most of my time at college, my free time, trying to make this thing happen. And the very last day of school, we got it voted into place and I realized this is just a document. Now somebody's actually going to have to like continue this work. And so I had to, I was a senior, I had to find a, a sophomore who had been kind of engaged in the project and ask him to build this thing that I had really just kind of initiated. And and he did. And, he, and his name is Josh and he did a great job with it. And I went back to, you know, back there 10 years later and, and it's still going. And um, the fun thing about that is my name is not on that uh, for two reasons. One, just because it's not and, you know, they, I didn't, I didn't, you know, uh, put it on there or something. And two, because it wasn't just me. Like all I did was get a document to pass and it was, I mean, it was grueling. It was a hard process. It was a quest. Uh, but all I did was pass this document and then it took uh, a community of people, you know, behind me to um, really build the thing. And uh, I, I love the quote by Jackie Robinson where he says, a life is not significant except for its impact on others. And so legacy to me doesn't mean that people remember me necessarily because I think that's dangerous territory. I've got a big ego and uh, I, I know that whatever praise or attention that I get, it never quite feels like enough. So I know that's a losing game. And I think the Hemingway story, um, you know, and I don't want to make light of mental illness or anything. I mean, certainly that was, you know, part of it. Uh, but I think it, it's sort of, um, it's an example of what happens when you think it's just on you to create the work. And, and the Mr. Holland story is this, I, you know, I think gives us an illustration of another way where the work that you do isn't really about you at all. In some ways, you're just, uh, you know, you're a fire starter, you're an initiator of something that's going to continue long after you're gone, that other people are going to complete, and your name may not be on it at all, and that's okay. Yeah, no, I, I love that concept, you know, of it being more about it's it's the the work that you leave or the impact that you leave in the world, regardless of whether or not anybody ever actually knows that um, you were the one who originated or participated in it. Um, so the name of this is Good Life Project. Um, talking about legacies, kind of probably a good place to wrap into this. Um, so if I throw that out there to live a good life, um, what does that mean to you? I um, When I was finishing this book, I had a friend reach out to me. She emailed me and she works for the startup in San Francisco and she really wants to be a writer and she's this incredible uh, memoirist. I mean, she writes this beautiful narrative nonfiction. And she emailed me and she says, Jeff, I feel stuck. Uh, I'm working for this startup. I'm doing a good job. She's the marketing person there and I keep getting promoted. I want to go write. I don't know how to make that happen, but I keep getting promoted at my job. And she says, honestly, like, I, I don't like feel like I'm doing a great job. Like I'm just doing an okay job, but they keep giving me raises and promotions and I don't know what to do with that. 
She said, I'm really scared that I might succeed at the wrong thing. And I think now more than ever, that's a real temptation for so many of us that work is no longer this means of merely making a living, of trying to survive. You know, you have choices. Um, and, and sometimes those choices um, are, are dangerous because we could actually choose the wrong thing because we have the right resources and an internet connection and we can make anything happen with the right, you know, attitude or, or so we think. And, you know, as, as you mentioned earlier, Jonathan, you know, what if your calling could be many things? And I think that's absolutely true. And I think that's, you know, we live in this age of possibility, but I also think there's the temptation to choose something and it, and it and it's not the right thing because we're measuring our success, you know, on somebody else's scale. And so my greatest fear, because I have this entrepreneurial bent and I see opportunity everywhere, is to not spread myself too thin or go after something so tenaciously that I end up succeeding at the wrong thing, meaning that I'm somehow – uh, you know, compromising my values or letting the end justify the means in some, you know, unhealthy or unethical ways. And and I, I fear getting to the, you know, end of the race, so to speak, and uh, not having uh, anything worthwhile to celebrate or worse, not having anyone to celebrate it with. So what it means to live a good life for me is um, really succeeding at the right things and having someone to share that success with. Beautiful. Love it. Thank you so much for the conversation. My pleasure. Thank you. What is it that you're meant to do? What about this concept of a portfolio life? Does it resonate with you guys? Does it feel too constricted? Does it feel too kind of loose and out there? Always love to hear what's going on in your mind around these ideas. You can hit me up and share your ideas and thoughts on the show over on Twitter at Jonathan Fields, all one word. And if you enjoyed this conversation feel like sharing it around, that would be awesome. And if you feel like jumping over to iTunes and just sharing a quick review, we'd so appreciate it. As always, you can find out more about what we're up to bigger picture over at goodlifeproject.com. We are enrolling Camp GLP, Summer Camp for Makers, Entrepreneurs, and World Shakers. It's going to be an amazing, amazing experience this summer, so you can learn more about it there. I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off this week for Good Life Project.